I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to the latest episode of Undercurrents. I hope that wherever you are, you're keeping safe and well in this most crazy of years. This week, what's been happening? Well, the UK has begun to emerge from its second COVID-19 lockdown and vaccines are about to be delivered to some of the most vulnerable people, we hope, and also key workers. But there's still a very long way to go. And we're not focusing directly on the pandemic in this week's episode. But it obviously informs both of the interviews that I've got lined up and very interesting interviews they are. So this week, as President-elect Joe Biden's transition to the White House gathers pace, I speak to academic and author Claire York, formerly of Chatham House, about the role that empathy played in the 2020 election campaign. We talk about empathy as a dynamic in elections, but also as a tool for governing and take a look at examples elsewhere in the world of political empathy in action. Then I catch up with friend of the podcast, Pepin Bergson, from the Europe programme at Chatham House. And we spoke about the current trajectory of EU-China relations and consider how COVID-19 and US trade wars have impacted this complex geopolitical situation Obviously, there's a huge economic piece to this story, but there's also other considerations, security, international order, global governance. And so it's very wide ranging conversation. Hope you enjoy listening. So now I'm really happy to be joined today by Claire York, formerly of Chatham House. Welcome back, Claire, virtually at least. It's great to see you. So Claire is a writer, an academic who has just completed a Kissinger postdoctoral fellowship at Yale. And she's working at the moment on two books on empathy and foreign policy, one of which is going to be published by our very own Chatham House Insights book series, which is published with Brookings Institution Press. And Claire's also the author of an article in the October-November issue of the World Today magazine titled Will Empathy Win the Day, which looks at how empathy may have affected the course of the US presidential election. Claire, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I wanted to start off with your World Today article, if I could. It's quite punchily titled and subtitled, Will Empathy Win the Day? Biden has it, Trump doesn't seem to, but is that enough for a democratic victory? Quite a statement. I just wondered if you could kick us off with a run through of the rationale for your argument and what point you were trying to make with this article. And then do you think that your prediction was sort of borne out by the result that we've seen? I think the result was fascinating and just the whole course of the election which still feels like it's rumbling on with all of the follow-up and the questions over the votes and fraud and contesting it it's so interesting that we've seen empathy at the forefront of this election campaign Mm. and biden has really put it at the heart of his and his team have pitched him as a healer in chief as the man who can connect America and unite America. And there's these wonderful vignettes that have been threaded through his whole run for president about how he's the man who knows all the stuff on his Amtrak commute, about how he's someone that will stop people on the streets and 
talk to them about what they're going through and mm. someone that everybody feels that they know. This kind of average Joe, everyman Joe. And it's been very central to his vision for how to heal America after the tensions that we've seen really come into the open, after the divisions that have becoming even more apparent, particularly this year, but before that, over the past four or five years, that he views empathy as the tonic to these challenges and what is needed to take America forward. And it's also something that people have associated very much with his character, that this is part of the man that he is. But what I've also found fascinating is that it's not just Joe Biden that's using this in the campaign. And the Republican National Convention was this fascinating example of Donald Trump's campaign also talking about the power of empathy Mm. and about how he cares for frontline workers, about how he's doing all he can to rescue hostages overseas, how he's been supportive of his staff during their personal troubles. So we've seen empathy at the forefront, but with very different faces. Because I think those of us who would view Biden as empathetic may not view Trump as empathetic and vice versa. That There's really this subjectivity to the concept. Empathy is such a powerful concept because it implies that you are trying to understand others, that you're trying to bridge a divide, that you're trying to recognize the humanity in other people. And so the fact that it's been so central to the campaign was something I wanted to really unpack within the article. Why does it matter? What does it signal? Why is it so important? And I think the result has shown that it did win the day, but I'm going to add a caveat to it, that it's still going to be a whole lot of hard work and difficult challenges ahead. And I thought it was so interesting that when they announced that Biden had won, that Vice President-elect Kamala Harris walked on stage and behind the screen it said the people have chosen empathy. It's a real sign of how it's been so central to what they're doing. But they now have to do the hard work of trying to unite the country and to engage with those people who didn't vote for them and listen to people who wanted a different outcome and who still don't believe the outcome that has been delivered. And that's going to be an enormous challenge. That's super interesting. Thank you for the summary. Yeah, I I just wanted to dig in a bit more into the distinction maybe between the empathy that we saw from the Trump campaign and from the Biden campaign. Because I think there have been many conversations over recent years about this perceived rise in populist leaders and populist political movements that are kind of shaking up the previous neoliberal consensus. But I wondered whether you think that empathy has played a role in those populist movements, or maybe there's a a distinction between the empathy that populists employ and the empathy that someone like Biden was employing. Because just maybe one thought that I had from reading what you were saying was that it seems that Trump and maybe other populist leaders, they use empathy in order to create an idea of a certain group that is the people and to say, I'm for your interests and I understand your pain and I'm going to take it away and, and sort things out. Whereas it seems from the Biden campaign, maybe, that what we're seeing is something a bit more broader than that. They're sort of saying that we're not going to define who the people are. You're all the people, and I'm going to try and understand all of you, which sounds like a pretty enormous task. And you mentioned about the challenges of uniting the country. But do we still think of those two different projects as empathy projects, or is there a difference? I think it's such an interesting element of the discussion around empathy because it has these different faces and these different nuances depending on how it's used. 
you're right to make this distinction between the kind of empathy that is being used in populist politics and then this kind of empathy that's being used as a, we are all in this together, we're all united, mm. we'll all come together and listen. But it still points to the fact that there's something that populist leaders are very effective at doing is speaking to the emotions of certain parts of the population. I think we saw this as well in Brexit in the United Kingdom, that there are some leaders who are very adept at tapping into the emotional currents within certain parts of society, that they know there are certain grievances that other parts of the political spectrum aren't talking about. There are certain fears and insecurities. And I don't think it's actually just about fear. There's a tendency that we talk about how populist leaders stoke fear. Right. Actually, I think it's also about ideas of pride. It's about ideas of identity. It's about ideas of humiliation. And we see this in both the rhetoric of Donald Trump, but also in people like Nigel Farage, who talk about this idea of we've been humiliated by how other people have treated us. We've been taken advantage of. Donald Trump's whole America first policy is based on the idea that America's somehow been humiliated or that it's not as strong and as mighty as people think it should be. So it plays into certain identities that I think other parts of the political spectrum, particularly those on the center and the left, are less willing to engage in. And partly because maybe their vision of society is very different and what they're proud of and what they think of as the direction of their country is different. But it means that you've got portions of the population who are not feeling heard or listened to or recognized in that political system. So it's a form of empathy. But I think when we talk about Joe Biden's empathy, it's more performed as a form of concern, mm. like empathic concern, that he's someone who cares about the well-being of all Americans and that he's willing to overlook people's politics in order to bring the country together. The whole range of emotions that populists employ, another one being, I think, that we've seen throughout this whole pandemic year is one of positivity, projecting positivity and, and saying that anybody who says that there are problems with this society are are doing you all down. People should be more positive. And, and, and actually, that's been a really powerful <laughs> populist message, I think, is that people don't want constantly to be thinking about the problems. They want to be yeah. sort of thinking, actually, our lives aren't that bad. There are something, and that's yeah. a really powerful, really powerful thing. So I wanted to pick up on another thing that you said at the end of your summary about the sort of challenges that lie ahead for Biden in terms of uniting the country and actually putting together a government. And of course, at the time of recording, he's only just been allowed to really start his transition. It's still very much contested. There are all sorts of legal battles going on. And you could say that the work has barely begun. But I wondered whether you had any thoughts on what role empathy could play in this process that the Biden administration will have to go through and whether you think there's a difference between empathy as used as a campaign tool and empathy as used as a tool of governance. Oh, two great and two big questions. On the first, the role that empathy can play, it's actually interesting to look, for example, at Abraham Lincoln's team of rivals, where he really brought together people from across the political spectrum. Mm. That doesn't have to mean all in the cabinet, but how do you seek to bridge this divide with the Republican Party that's become so entrenched over the past few years? Both parties really seem to have created a rift that makes it very hard for them to talk across the aisle. So how can he use this transition period? How can he use the formation of new task force or new initiatives mm -hmm. to bring on board those 
in the opposition who are maybe amenable to cooperation on certain core interests, whether that's the environment or welfare or healthcare. How do you start to create more shared responsibility in governance and also listen to those people who say, we don't think your vision fully appreciates the challenges that certain citizens in Detroit or Michigan or Iowa, wherever, feel. And so I think that's going to be key, demonstrating that he is listening and demonstrating that he is willing to countenance other opinions and at least speak to what it is they're revealing about the undercurrents within society. And then your second question was on the difference between empathy and campaigning and then empathy when you're in government. And when you're campaigning, it's very much this vision of hope and this vision of positivity about how you're going to bring about a transformation and you're going to offer an alternative to the current administration. When you get in governance, you then get into the complexity of politics. You get into the very practical realities of having to deliver real solutions to genuine problems in ways that are not going to be simple or easy. And so in that way, empathy becomes much more of a conscious and deliberate practice in a very real sense. It's about how do you bring it into the different departments of government? How do you encourage people to be approaching the challenges in different ways? And so empathy is very much about attempting to understand the lived experiences, feelings, perspectives, and worldviews of others. So how do you start to bring that into how you govern? What questions do you need to be asking within government departments? What do you need to be doing on the front line of policy delivery? So how do you bring it in as a common thread and change habits and behaviours so that it's incorporated into how you design and implement policy. But it's interesting to look, for example, at places like New Zealand, where they've put ideas of empathy really in the heart of their budget, their vision for society. It's in the documents that are produced for the economy, for example. So there's places where we can get examples from. But he'll also have to demonstrate and model it as a new president, that that's something that he really believes. And that's, like I said before, in reaching across the aisle, in demonstrating he's aware of the opposing views and being very transparent about the challenges and reconciling them. And I suppose there's a challenge from the other side of the spectrum as well to this project, because given the polarization that exists at the moment in the US, but not just the US, everywhere it seems, you may well see the more progressive side of the Democrat Party sort of saying, well, why are you doing this reaching over the aisle activity? You've you've just won the election. We're here in, in Congress, all right, we don't control the whole thing, but you have a responsibility to represent the voters that got you here and you shouldn't be trying to compromise in policy terms with the other side. So do you think that that's going to be a challenge for Biden to overcome? And do you think it's possible to overcome that? I think it's going to be a real challenge. And I think not just from the far left. I think there's a lot of discussion you see in the media now about, do I really have to empathise with a Trump supporter. And you're seeing people trying to go through this process of what does this mean? He's put empathy at the heart of his campaign, but what does that mean in my neighborhood? What does that mean for people where I don't understand how they voted or it offends me how they voted? So it's going to be one of the challenges of governance is taking the people with him on this mission on taking the country as a whole towards a different style of politics. And then for the left, I think there's tensions already within the Democrat Party between the very progressive side and then the more traditional side. And I think he's tried 
to bring different groups together again in some of his task forces and to show that he is willing to work with the different parts of the party. But I think it's incredibly hard in a country of that size, in a political system as complex as the American system, to be able to move as quickly in the direction of progress as you want to. And that's really unfortunate. But it means that there will always be people who feel that the country is not doing enough, Mm. that the leader is not doing enough. And I think finding allies on the progressive left is going to be really critical for him. Finding people who can explain to their base, we're making progress, but it's slower than we want, but this is the direction we're going in. I feel like this might be a good time to bring in another question, which I think relates to how Biden engages with the progressive side of his party and as part of this process. But this is one of representation. And I I wanted to ask whether you think that there are limits to what empathy can achieve when we consider it from this point of view of a call, which I think is increasingly heard, that certain groups of people need to be better represented in political systems. So it might be, I mean, we've seen it with the Black Lives Matter protests this year, but also the Women's March and Me Too campaigns and all this stuff, the constituencies of people are sort of saying, well, there are fundamental inequalities. We're not being given a voice to improve our situations and those of our fellow citizens. And so the people who have traditionally been in power need to step back and let us rise up to these positions. And I wonder how you think empathy interacts with this problem of underrepresentation. Are there topics, for example, that Joe Biden and other white people in his cabinet maybe can't speak on in a way that a black person could, or a woman could, or a, a someone from the Hispanic community could? Where does representation live in this discussion? I mean, representation is key. And one of the ideas behind empathy. And one of the reasons why I think empathy is so powerful in politics is that it forces us all to consider how other people experience the world and what that experience is like. And that means understanding how some people do not have the same advantages and opportunities. It means understanding whose voices are missing from debates and why that makes such a difference. It means understanding the privileges that we've had and also our own position within society and not just the points of view, but also what are the systems and structures in place that hinder equality and hinder representation. And if you start to put empathy in the heart of government and governance, you should in theory start to be having much more conscious and deliberate consideration for what's missing, who's missing, whose voices needs to be here. And I think you can be white and be asking that questions. In fact, it's exactly people who are white and privileged who should be asking those questions and should be saying, you know, I'm sat at a table, everyone around me looks like me, this can't be representative of the country that I'm leading. And that's really key, I think, going forward. But I think what's been so fascinating over the last year, especially with the Black Lives Movement, especially as well with Me Too movement and the feminist movement and real initiatives to increase the representation of LGBTQ plus communities is that we're hearing all these different people saying, I want to be in this political process and I don't feel heard and I don't feel seen and I don't feel recognized. And the systems and policies that are being designed actually do harm to me. Let's talk about this. And I think that's a really positive conversation to have. But as I said before, with empathy and governance, in response to a question you asked, it's hard because you've got to look at why is it that empathy has not been there before? 
What are the systems and structures in place that hinder empathy? Has it maybe been seen by people as not politically expedient? That actually, mm-hmm. if you favor this idea of strongman governance, then maybe empathy is seen as a weakness. And so you've not brought it in. What about the personalities involved? Are there people who, as well, view it as a weakness, don't think it has a place in government, or aren't willing to countenance other opinions because they believe that they are right and that they are the person who has a singular vision for how to improve the world? And I think what we've seen through this year, through the past few years, is that we have to be much more inclusive and much more tolerant and open to finding a way through that incorporates greater representation, far more voices and ideas and use the dialogue and the discourse to really find a way through that everyone can get behind. You've already mentioned in passing how the New Zealand government has been bringing empathy into their legislative processes and and the successes that they've had. But I, I wonder if looking further afield, whether you have any other examples or advice for maybe for the Biden cabinet, other countries that they should check out, who is who is doing empathy well? And what are the core lessons that we can learn from them, finally, looking ahead? I mean, I think New Zealand is such a great example, though, just because it has been at the forefront of Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's message. She's Mm. spoken about it at the World Economic Forum. They've incorporated it into their policy approaches and their economy. And I think what's been so interesting with how they've done it is that it's not been soft and fluffy, which is one of the criticisms that a lot of people who advocate empathy get that it's seen as something that's a soft skill but it's been matched at every point by strength and by clear action so when you had the Christchurch bombings for example last year there was the narrative of unity and empathy and compassion for the victims and the community that were affected but at the same time there was real concrete action to limit gun ownership and to reduce access to extremist content online. So we see that when we talk about empathy in politics, that it's not just about the nice words. It's got to be matched by strength. It's got to be matched by conviction. And it's got to be matched by real tangible action. And I think we've seen in the past, for example, people like Nelson Mandela in South Africa who've come in and really sought to bridge divides and understand how the people who he's replaced in power might be feeling and to not shame them, to not humiliate them because that then can foster more grievances. And we don't fully understand sufficiently that power of shame and humiliation that's been quite weaponized in the last few years in politics, how that fosters more disenchantment and anger. I think other ways to look at it are actually to look at a lot of the grassroots movements that are really doing a lot of the work on bringing empathy into governance. So there's various organizations such as One Team Gov in the UK and Canada that are trying to bring it into government. You've got new news media outlets that are trying to burst the bubble of the social media algorithms and bring different stories to the forefront and different voices and different ideas. In the United States, there's a new organization, a starting point that's looking at how to get different people speaking across the aisle and sharing information about different policies and politics to get people to be more informed and to understand what their representatives are standing for. And we've also seen the growth of feminist foreign policy in countries like Sweden and Mexico and Canada and France, where they're talking about how maybe has our foreign policy been too inward looking or how is it not sufficiently looked at the role of gender or other factors in how we design policy? So I think there's a load of grassroots movements that we can look at and that are practicing it in very real ways within communities. 
And then other governments are doing it often on policy-specific areas. So I think there's certain areas where we can look at it and say this is, for example, with Germany, when Angela Merkel opened up the borders to refugees and was very much, this is something we should do because we know about suffering. Mm -hmm. We know what, what it feels like to be in a difficult situation and we should help because we can help. And we see from that as well the limitations of empathy and the that it cannot sometimes be really unpopular. This whole year has really been an exercise in why empathy is so important and so powerful. We've learned through the pandemic that individualism doesn't work. We work far better as communities. We work far better when we're together, when we're able to help one another and support one another. And we need to start learning to listen to one another far better, both at a government level, but also I think these lessons hold true for society more generally. We have to get better at listening to difference, at holding space for difference, and at being able to ask people genuine questions to understand where they're coming from and what matters to them and what is important to them. And then try to find common solutions. Because I think most people are united on their belief that they want security. They want the best for their family and friends. They want health and they want to know that they're going to have their basic needs met. So how do we start to have a dialogue around that? And how do we start to be more self-reflective about which stories no longer serve us and are no longer valid? And how do we start to reshape society in a more collective, shared way going forward around what we actually value and around what I think the pandemic has revealed matters to us all. So it's not going to be easy. I don't in any way think that we just need to have empathy and we insert it and then suddenly everything gets better. It's it's a conscious, deliberate, painful process because we're often confronted with our own egos and our own assumptions and worldviews. So I think that's going to be the task for Biden is how to navigate that. Absolutely. It feels like there's a lot of conscious, deliberate, painful processes going on at the moment. Um, <laughs> it really does, right? I'm glad that we're adding <laughs> I'm glad that we're adding empathy to the list. Claire York, thank you so much for, for this conversation. When's the insights book gonna be out? It's due in 2022, I believe. 2022. So something to look forward to. If you want to read Claire's World Today article, it's available on the Chatham House website now. It's titled, Will Empathy Win the Day? Claire, thank you so much for joining us. And yeah, wish you all the best. And thanks again. Thank you so much. So now I'm joined by uh, Pepine Bergson, who is a research fellow in the Europe programme and friend of the podcast. You may remember Pepine came on earlier in the year to talk about Europe and the economic effects of COVID-19. And he's back with us today, really happy to say, to talk to us about a new project that he's working on, on how European countries have been framing relations with China, particularly in the economic sphere. And Pepine's most recent work on the Chatham House website now is an expert comment, which is titled, Why the Pandemic and Populism Still Work Together. And it is very much worth a read. Pepine, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? Thanks for having me back. I'm doing very well. How's the podcast? The podcast is, yeah, it's doing all right. Yeah, we, we just celebrated our 100,000th download, which is very exciting. So I'm very happy to, to share that news. And obviously, your episode was a, was a particularly well-downloaded one, so I had to get you back on to bump up the numbers a bit <laughs> a bit further. So thanks for coming back. Glad so, to yeah. <laughs> We're 
speaking today about EU-China relations, and I suppose I thought it would be useful to go back in time a little bit and think about how China and, and Europe or the Eurozone maybe have been engaging economically in recent years. So to begin with, what's been China's approach to engaging with Europe? I mean, we often hear about the Belt and Road Initiative in the context of developing countries in Africa or Southern Asia, but has it also extended into Europe? The BRI is definitely uh, extended into Europe, particularly into Southeastern Europe and Eastern Europe, where there have been actual infrastructure projects, for instance, funded with uh, Chinese money through the BRI. Mostly, though, I think that the way to understand economic relations between Europe and China is through trade. When China opened up in the 80s, one of the uh, first countries of agents with which they came to an agreement was actually Europe. And since then, sort of trade volumes, particularly from China to the rest of Europe, have only grown. And basically for all European countries, whether it's Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, they all, as goes for basically every developed economy in the world, they all import a lot from China nowadays. So I think that's really sort of the main economic link, even if others are, have been opening up more in recent years. And could you tell us a bit about the sort of major sectors that that involves? What is Europe importing? Is it largely sort of manufactured goods or raw materials? Or what are the sectors that, of economic activity that we're talking about? So most of that is uh, exactly what you mentioned. So you're talking about sort of consumer goods, of course, we all know electronics, all the devices that we're currently using to record this, probably, say, assembled in China on them. Increasingly, sort of higher up the value chain in recent years, of course, more from Chinese companies themselves as well. But the basic structure of that has remained the same. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what's going in the other direction? What is Europe providing to China? So generally, that's still a lot less than European imports from China. So uh, the story is always that a lot of the con container ships and the trains nowadays as well that come from China completely stuffed with all sorts of goods that we just discussed and go back almost completely empty. There are some exports to China. Of course, the, for instance, the luxury uh, market is very big in, in China. So French, Italian luxury manufacturers sell quite a lot there. Famously, Germany exports quite a lot to China as well. So these are mainly capital goods, a bit of cars as well. So it's those kind of products. China is opening up a bit more to uh, Western service providers as well, but that's a very slow process. So some financial services, but that's all still quite uh, small. Would you say it's fair that in general, Europe has kind of welcomed this additional, this sort of increased activity from China? I mean, people are always talking about China's rise in IR theory terminology, and, and we should be worried about the great power competition that is going to ensue. But do you think that European states have generally responded quite positively to China's activity here? I think the, sort of the great power competition is a really interesting way of looking at this because that is how the US largely sees the way that it inter interacts with China. And I don't think that's the case for Europe. And I don't think it ever has. And particularly sort of when you look at the member states themselves, for them, China was largely, particularly on the economic side, an opportunity. So there's always been this idea of China is going to be the biggest consumer market in the world at some point, going to have the largest middle class in the world. So this is a real opportunity for our companies uh, to go in. 
which is why that also happened to a certain degree. A lot of particularly German firms, for instance, went into China and are doing very well out of that. A lot of the German car makers, for them, China is now their largest market by far. And so that has played out and they never really saw it as being in some sort of great power competition because it's just not a game that they were that they wanted to play thinking about the european union now has there been some attempt to develop a kind of cohesive strategy on the part of the european union or the eurozone maybe towards economic relations with china or has this very much been a kind of country by country process with with different countries having different strategies that's the process that's slowly starting to build at the moment. So China just started out as an opportunity mainly for sort of specific countries and specific firms. And it wasn't really high up on the agenda at any point in time. Nobody in Europe was really afraid of competition, for instance, from Chinese firms. And that in recent years has really changed. And there's sort of this one moment that's often mentioned in in that context that is in sort of 2015-16 when Chinese firms started to invest more outside of China and particularly in Europe. So they started buying up European firms and particular ones with sort of very specific expertise in certain areas. So for Germany, for instance, they had a quite a wake-up call when a Chinese firm bought a German robotics firm and suddenly they realized, oh, this very lucrative market for us will want to start competing with us at some point. Because at the same time, China also put out a strategy saying, by uh, 2025, we want to be world leaders in sort of high-end manufacturing, mm. which is what Germany specializes in. <laughs> so over time, those kind of perceptions really shifted. But that hasn't fully translated yet into a European strategy on China yet. Uh, last year, the uh, European uh, Commission or the Euro- European External Action Service came out with a document sort of talking about China. And this was, this was the first time that they described China as a systemic rival, which was quite a big moment. But that doesn't still set out a real China strategy. And it's also phrasing that hasn't really been taken up by the member states themselves. So they don't talk about China's systemic rival yet. They say what they don't like uh, every once in a while, but they still mainly see it as an opportunity. So a real China strategy isn't there yet. And most of the member states haven't even published something like a China strategy, mm. something that you know the US clearly has done. But in Europe, so the Dutch have done that, uh, Sweden has done that, but really not much more beyond that. And do you think when the External Action Service described them as a systemic rival in, in that sense, do you think that that was mostly to do with economics or, or was there also the kind of security dimension to this as well? And I, I suppose, does it even make sense to be able to sort of separate those two concerns out? Would it be possible to, to be incredibly sceptical of China's activity in, in sort of security and defence activities, but then also embrace them as a kind of economic partner? That is a bit what they're trying to do. So I think that's, um, yes, they call them a systemic rival, but at the same time, They also said that they're a partner in other areas. So, for instance, in dealing with climate change, they see uh, China as a potential partner. It's still not the full kind of rivalry that the U.S. sees, for instance. And, you know, the U.S. talks about wanting to decouple from China. There's no movement in that kind of direction in Europe. So that is still sort of a very different way of of looking at this. But I think it's, it's not just about 
looking at you know security or the economic story, there's also a sort of slightly more longer running story about the way that Europe and really all of the West views China and the expectations of where they saw and now see China going. So for a very long time, there was the expectation that China being a one-party authoritarian state, but with a largely capitalist economic system, would, as it grew richer, basically converge onto the kind of liberal democracy that we have in the West, because richer citizens would start to demand not just economic freedoms, but political freedoms as well. And I think around the time that Europe started to really get worried about China was the time that the realization started to sink in that that wasn't really happening. And that really came with President Xi, who effectively made clear this is not going to happen (laughs) under his watch. And that has also changed sort of perceptions of China. And that's something that I think Europe is still grappling with in terms of how do you work that into your strategy and systemic rivalry is part of that. So it's about daring and being able to say China has a different system than we have, and they are also going to maintain that system. That is not going to change. They are not going to become like us anytime soon. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. And does that that last consideration also have an impact on not just how China organizes itself, but also whether it projects that alternative to the rest of the world as well. And whether actually, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the EU has kind of had this position as as a, as a rule maker in some areas, at least in the international system. But then we're sort of seeing this challenge that China maybe wants to set some different rules and maybe other countries would rather go along with that model than the European model. Is that accurate? To a large extent, that is accurate. I think within the international system, China has been very smart in playing along with that and along with the rules as much as possible. So you saw this particularly early on in the Trump term when the Americans started pushing back against a lot of sort of the rules-based international order, so to say, and suddenly the leader of an authoritarian one-party state went to Davos to defend the liberal rules-based order. And the Europeans at that time still largely went along with that. So that is definitely something I think also there has just been a bit of fear about what the success of the China model could inspire elsewhere. The EU in in a lot of its sort of foreign policy has always tried to rely on soft power and sort of showing the value of its free liberal democratic model. And then you see a development model in China, which is clearly much more successful than basically what the Europeans presented. And I think there's some worry over what that might do in terms of the kind of coalitions that might build up of countries that follow that model and can push back against basically Europe. And hopefully from January again, also the transatlantic alliance has to offer. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll definitely come back to the United States at the end of this conversation. But before we do, I just wanted to ask you a bit about how the events of this year has affected this picture, how COVID-19 in particular has altered the state of China-EU relations, if at all. Have we seen much in the way of cooperation between China and Europe on on the pandemic? And how generally has China been viewed as as responding to COVID? 
there has been cooperation in, in some areas, particularly in the in the health areas, maybe not always as successfully and as rapidly as you'd want, particularly early on in the pandemic. But I think generally the story here of Chinese diplomacy in times of corona has been one of a really massive own goal. What's being referred to as the wolf warrior diplomacy, mm. where Chinese diplomats basically all over the world suddenly became very assertive, started pushing back against any sort of suggestion that, uh, for instance, the virus might come from China even. Mm. So they're even still trying to disprove that. Who started effectively spreading misinformation in uh, several countries. I think that has done relations quite a bit of harm, even though at the same time still Europe and China continue negotiating on a bilateral investment agreement, which both sides still say that they want to strike at some point. I think that has been quite problematic for Chinese diplomacy in the world and also for relations uh, between China and, and, in this case, Europe. Do you think that that kind of diplomatic dimension, almost a kind of reputational consideration, do you think that's going to be significant enough to alter the more kind of structural economic stuff? I mean, you, you described earlier in the conversation just the scale of economic cooperation and the amount of imports that, that Europe brings into China. Would would diplomatic concerns make a dent in, in any of that economic picture? It makes it more difficult. I think it may, uh, also makes it more difficult from a public opinion perspective within Europe, especially like how far can you go in terms of cooperation? And you've seen almost across the board quite strong pushback against China in public opinion everywhere. So that does limit policymakers' room for maneuver to a certain extent. But I think you're right to say that these big structural factors are what's really driving these kind of things. And the investment agreement that I mentioned earlier, I think is quite a nice example of that because you hear both sides saying, yes, we want to strike an agreement and it's very important to us. And they set deadlines every time that they don't make. And that is because sort of from a diplomatic perspective, they say it's very important and both sides want to get the photo up where they shake hands, or I guess at the moment they bump elbows and say, look what we've achieved. But actually, underlying, so if the underlying structural forces aren't really conducive to coming to that kind of agreement because it would require China to really change a lot about its economic growth model. Mm. Basically, they would need to open up much more than they would really like to that they've said that they will. Mm. So the, the underlying structural drivers of such an agreement aren't really there. Just the diplomatic surface level agreement we should get to an investment treaty. So that's why we haven't had one yet, even though they've been negotiating for years, and why I think it's very unlikely that a real sort of substantial agreement will be struck anytime soon. And I think that nicely illustrates uh, the point that you made. Thank you. I'd like to talk a bit now about the elephant in the room, I guess, where the United States fits into this picture, because they do have a have a major influence on these discussions, I, I would imagine. And Obviously, one of the most notable policies of the current President Donald Trump has been his proclaimed trade war with China. How far has that confrontation affected Europe? So I think sort of in real economic terms, it hasn't affected Europe all that much. The way that President Trump went about it, I think, at times brought Europe and China closer together. So the examples that I mentioned in terms of standing up for, or at least normally standing up for the global rules-based order uh, together. 
having said that, I think one of the issues has been that the U.S. also, to a lesser extent, but also engaged in a small-scale trade war with Europe, which also pushed them basically away from the U.S. What I think it has done in terms of impact in Europe is made a lot of Europe realize that sort of the world has changed and that the looming conflict that there was between the US and China was going to affect the global economy, was going to affect them, and that they need to start thinking about this and also potentially take action based on that. And I think that's where we've now had several years of uh, European politicians talking about the need to achieve strategic autonomy or economic sovereignty, as they call it. So they need to be able to stand on their own two feet because in a world of superpower competition between China and the US, they sort of realized that they won't be able to rely on either of them. So I think that has been sort of the main effect on Europe. Judging from the debates during the election campaign, but also the commentary afterwards, I think it's it's not necessarily that clear what Joseph Biden, the president-elect's approach to China will be. I haven't seen a very clear China strategy from the Biden campaign or their transition team. But what does seem clear so far is that they're very much making an effort to say the rules-based international order is back. It's going to be back to nice, boring, predictable diplomacy. We're going to stand up for norms. We're going to do all of this stuff that you've been missing for the last four years. Do you think that that attempt to return to a kind of previous normal, is that going to make a difference to Europe's approach to China? Is it going to sort of mean that maybe strategic autonomy is not such an urgent need in that sense? I do think it poses a risk that that happens because as with, for instance, the whole debate on defence spending by NATO countries, it becomes a lot easier to just sort of ignore what you need to do or what, in that case, what you've agreed to do. So yeah. President Obama also told the Europeans very regularly that, guys, you really need to start spending more on defense. We've agreed to this. <laughs> and it's just a difference that President Trump then tweets about it and gets very upset at a NATO meeting, and it becomes sort of a much bigger thing. So if they do get into the situation where sort of that pressure subsides, then you might see some... I guess, some backsliding on that point. I guess the counter-argument to that would be that a lot of the American gripes with China are shared by most of Europe, and particularly sort of in the economic sphere, but also when you talk about human rights. So, you know, the situation in Xinjiang, but also Hong Kong, for instance. Mm. So they, they share a lot of the complaints that they have with China and will want to continue working based on that, and particularly in a context where sort of views of China have really shifted, as I discussed earlier. So I'm sure it will change that much. I think there was always a question as to how far Europe would be willing to go to actually build on the claims of we are now going to become strategically autonomous, whatever that means. <laughs> it's, a, it's a nicely uh, malleable phrase, isn't it? Strategic autonomy. So just to kind of end this conversation, which has been fascinating, thank you. I thought, I don't want to make you make any predictions, but I just thought that obviously we're at the end of 2020 now. There's about to be a change of administration in the US, unless something far more serious happens. We're seeing every week now a new COVID-19 vaccine being announced and, and hopes that things, at least by the middle of next year, will sort of start to return to a vague sort of normal. 
looking ahead over sort of the course of 2021, are there any potential events or flashpoints that you can see sort of on the horizon that people should be paying attention to as regards kind of China-EU relations? What are the things we should be looking out for? So one of the things is the investment agreement that I uh, discussed earlier. So whether that happens or not. Um, mm. So I'm still convinced that that is going to be very, very difficult to get to. But leaders on both sides keep suggesting that it's possible. I think that would definitely say something and would sort of complicate particularly the cooperation on the economic side between the US and Europe on this. One of the Real things I think to watch out for, though, is the U.S. response. And sorry, so what you were talking about is how does a President Biden differ from a President Trump in terms of the way that they engage with China? And there is a quite a strong bipartisan consensus within Washington that they are now in a basically a superpower rivalry with China, but not quite one on what to do in that case. So the Trump administration relied on tariffs. The democratic response was generally to say, well, tariffs don't work because what you're basically doing is taxing American consumers. So there's a question of whether they continue down that route or whether they go full in on working together with allies and the story that you described as well. And I think that would be quite difficult. I think you sort of get into the same situation as under President Obama, where sort of you try to use alliances and economic means to sort of shift Chinese practices and policy. And I think that has turned out to be quite difficult. And after four years of Trump pushing a lot of allies in the, the region away, who are now actually suddenly striking trade agreements with China, mm. however superficial they are, that becomes a lot harder. So I think those are really things to, to look out for. How successful is the US going to be able to be in that kind of strategy? And is there not a risk that they're going to get stuck in something in between where they don't use the economic coercion that the Trump administration applied, whether you agree that it works or not, they were willing to use uh, those means, which also hurt the US? Or are they going to try to work, but sort of fail to work with their allies and basically China continues to be able to do what it wants? Yeah, something to look forward to. Uh, <laughs> at least it will <laughs> give us to keep plenty, talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Plenty of food for thought for future podcast appearances. Pepine Bergson, thanks so much for that overview. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. I hope you've enjoyed listening. If you have, then please subscribe on whichever podcast you use to ensure that you don't miss an episode. And if you don't mind, it would also be really lovely if you could leave a review as it makes it far easier for people to find us. We've got a couple more interviews to go before the end of the 2020 season, this seemingly endless 2020 season. <laughs> so keep an eye out for those in your podcast feed. And in the meantime, I'll just say stay well and thanks as ever for listening to Undercurrents.